Hello, my name is Wayne Jones. Welcome to the My Sam Johnson podcast. This week's episode is called Sam and Universities. And I'll acknowledge right from the front that uh, it has more to do with universities than it has to do with Sam. And basically this this, uh, podcast, this episode, was triggered by an article I read about a professor who just yesterday resigned from his position at a university. Uh, Just to give the details, it's assistant professor Peter Bogosian, and he was an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. And uh, he wrote an open letter to the provost of that university uh, detailing the reasons uh, why he was resigning. And it basically had to do, I don't don't want to oversimplify it. In fact, the full letter is available freely on the internet. You can find it. It's an open letter. He had worked there at the university for 10 years as a teacher uh, of philosophy. And uh, basically what he details in his letter is a just a continuing campaign and, a, as he perceived it, a deterioration of uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech at the university and um, in our culture generally. And of course, uh, when he's talking about that, uh, he certainly makes direct reference to however you want to call it, the, the woke culture that currently exists now and uh, and how it ba- basically brought him to the point where he felt that he, uh, that he uh, had to resign. Um, it's really a sad story. It's a very articulately uh, written letter, and I'd really encourage you to uh, to read it. Um, but mostly, what I wanted to talk about uh, today was, uh, I guess, maybe two two things. One is um, fairly serious, I guess, and the other one is serious as well. But it's one of the sort of funny things he did as a you know, a few years ago basically to illustrate some of the points he was making about you know the the university the academy uh, universities generally the serious point basically is one that i talked about last week in my uh, podcast and basically has to do with the effect of uh, woke culture on silencing people either directly or um in a certain way by sort of uh, intimidation in the sense of silencing people before they actually say anything because they know what kind of reception they're going to get if they do so. Uh, and uh, b- both of those together add up to, you know, if you, when you add that together, basically you end up with a culture eventually that uh, doesn't tolerate dissent because anyone who disagrees with the, uh, the sort of the accepted opinion uh, knows what they're going to get if they express that view. Uh, it surprises me, uh, in a way, how quickly this has developed. I remember well there was, uh, and actually let me say another thing, not only how quickly it's developed, 
but how intense it is. That's that that's part of it, just how strong and widespread it is. Uh, I remember, I was going to say, I remember back in the 1990s, there was a, um, a similar but much less um, vehement uh, movement called, uh, in writing circles anyway, it was referred to as appropriation of voice. And, you know, that's certainly one of the things, for example, that you hear in woke culture about, uh, you know, if you're, a, for example, a cis male, you shouldn't be writing from the point of view of a uh, an indigenous female, that sort of thing. And this was a big thing back in the 1990s as well, when it was mostly a case of basically males shouldn't be writing from the point of view of, of, of women, of females. And uh, again, you know, the similar issues were... Were, were were raised and similar disagreements were made and all that sort of thing. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it it all, you know, faded out kind of thing. These things don't work like that. But I don't remember it having the, either the widespreadness or the intensity that it has now. And uh, now, of course, it's also a much, much broader issue. It seemed like an a kind of a narrower issue back then and it also seemed like it mostly had to do with writing and now we're talking about free expression generally and how that's being uh basically curtailed uh, so that's that's the serious part and again I'd, I'd point you to his letter so you can read some of the some of the details there but one of the other points that he uh tried to make uh, was about the publishing culture in academia. And basically it's a culture run by what's called, if you're not already familiar, what's called peer review, which basically means that uh, academic journals set themselves up with editorial boards and with peer reviewers who work, who, you know, volunteer usually for the boards. And the idea is that articles are given, if an article is submitted to a journal, uh, that article will then be generally blind reviewed, by which it means that a reader will get to see it, or two readers usually will get to see it, at least two, and they will assess it, uh, review it, uh, you know, based on its content, based on, you know, these will be these will be scholars who work in the same area, basically. These aren't just sort of people on the street, so to speak. And that that this is considered a way of of vetting, basically, so that you can uh, 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 determine, so that the journal, the editor of the journal, can determine before something gets published that uh, is worthy of being published. That there are are things in in there that that are worthy of being said. Uh, so Bogosian set out to basically. Uh, basically critique that whole method and in a sense to, to demonstrate that it doesn't really kind of exist fully and there are there that there are lots of journals that you can get published in where either they say they are peer-reviewed or and they don't do any peer review or the peer reviewers are some of the slackest people on the planet because they don't recognize gibberish when they see it and this is what he did, basically. He submitted an article to a journal, 
the article is called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. <laughs> so, I mean, these things, like all satire or parody, these things are funny. And like all satire, especially, uh, there's always a there's always a serious a serious issue that's being uh, that's being addressed. It's basically being done by way of uh, humor and mockery and parody and that sort of thing. So, um, what I wanted to do is to take some time to read some excerpts from this article because what happened is that he submitted the article. It presumably went through peer review. And they agreed to publish it. And he acknowledges fully uh, that it was gibberish. They, you know, just just ridiculous. And uh, yet it's now a, a published article in a peer-reviewed journal that others could come across and consider to be quote-unquote knowledge that they can use and cite in further articles to get published. So I just wanted to read some of the excerpts from it to give it an idea of the ridiculousness of it uh, so that if there were real peer reviewers uh, you know to say the least they should have picked up on these things so uh, here's the first uh, excerpt he's writing a section called machismo braggadocio and this is the text inasmuch as masculinity is essentially performative so too is the conceptual penis the penis in the words of Judith Butler, quote, can only be understood through reference to what is barred from the signifier within the domain of corporeal legibility, unquote. The penis should not be understood as an honest expression of the performer's intent should it be presented in a performance of masculinity or hypermasculinity. Thus, the isomorphism between the conceptual penis and what's referred to throughout discursive feminist literature as, quote, toxic hypermasculinity, unquote, is one defined upon a vector of male cultural machismo braggadocio, with the conceptual penis playing the roles of subject, object, and verb of action. So, <laughs> it's hard to know what to say about such I guess I'll call it writing as that uh, all I can say that as a male it's bad enough having a real penis but having a conceptual penis that causes so much damage is an even worse thing that we're doing to the world so in the second excerpt and in further into the uh, into the article he gets to another point that he's making uh, which is the link between the conceptual penis and climate change. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll just read the, the quote here, one of the paragraphs that he has in, in that section. Nowhere are the consequences of hypermasculine machismo braggadocio isomorphic identification with the conceptual penis more problematic than concerning the issue of climate change. Climate change is driven by nothing more than it is by certain damaging themes in hypermasculinity that can be best be understood by the dominant rapacious approach to climate ecology identifiable with the conceptual penis. Our planet is rapidly approaching the much warned about two degree 
Celsius climate change threshold and due to patriarchal power dynamics that maintain present capitalist structures, especially with regard to the fossil fuel industry, the connection between hypermasculine dominance of scientific, political, and economic discourses and the irreparable damage to our ecosystem is made clear. So that's the funny part. The whole essay, the whole article is like that. It's actually a very short article of uh, six or seven pages, something like that. Uh, again, you can find it online. I'm pretty sure if you quote searched on Google, the conceptual penis as a social construct. <laughs> I'm almost certain there's never been an article published with that other title. I'll, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. Uh, but really... Uh, this is all very serious business. I mean, basically, you've got a a 10-year experienced philosopher who's resigning from his university. The other thing that he details in his, uh, in his open letter to the provost is the, um, is the harassment that he uh, experienced on, on, on campus for some of the, some of the things that he did. And these are not all things like, uh, you know, like, basically pranks like this sort of thing. And by prank, I'm not meaning to lower it at all. Basically, it illustrates a very, very important, uh, a very, very important point. Uh, but other things where, you know, he would, uh, his practice apparently was to bring in to his class uh, people of very, very different viewpoints, you know, and his idea was, and this is a, this is a beautiful thing. His idea was, to expose his students to viewpoints that were very, very different, uh, you know, if not offensive to what they might currently believe or what society currently believes. But that was his practice in class in, in some cases to do that. And, uh, you know, to have a discussion or to try to have a discussion. These are, I mean, uh, you know, the mind boggles kind of thing. This is what basically a university is supposed to be built on. It's basically built on the fact of, you know, these are, these are where thought people are. These are where discussions take place. This is where, you know, truth and truths emerge is from universities. Uh, but he would get, uh, basically, you know, he talked about being spat on, about swastikas being uh, uh, written on mirrors, that kind of thing. Uh, even talked about things like where he would be engaged in an interview with an author and uh, some other faculty member, I think it was, came in and kind of unplugged the mic, that kind of thing. So just stupid uh uh, machismo things like that that were done uh it, just astounding to me that that would be uh that would exist not only in our civilized society but especially at a university i have i have by myself personally have worked in several universities and have, for many years in total and have a strong belief in the idea and a strong reverence for what they stand for. And uh, to hear about something like this is really, uh, really disheartening. It really, really is. And the sad thing, of course, is that uh, I'm, you know, pretty sure that 
Portland State University is not the only university like this. And the other perhaps even sadder thing is that perhaps at Portland State and perhaps at many other universities, there are other professors who were just keeping quiet uh, or just playing it safe or something like that. Uh, you know, the big deal at universities in practical terms is, you know, is what, what is called tenure, basically, which basically, uh, in effect, guarantees you a job for all, for all intents and purposes at the university so that you can say what you want to say without fear of having your, your livelihood taken away from you by the administrators at the university. So he was he was untenured he was an assistant professor and uh one presumes that tenured profs could speak out uh perhaps they're not doing so and actually i don't mean to imply either that i i've you know fully covered and researched this whole uh this whole area there are probably others that are speaking out for sure but uh i'd be willing to bet that there are others that are keeping silent as well and certainly the ones that don't have tenure. Because the other thing about this, again, in practical terms, is that uh, tenured positions at universities are extremely rare. So uh, if you're, you know, basically if he's an assistant professor, uh, the plan for him, basically the idea when uh, a professor is hired, assistant is sort of the either the first or second level of, of professor at a university. The idea is that he would make it to associate professor and maybe full professor, but also that he would he would get tenure at some point. And there's a whole long process that any university goes through so that a faculty member can attain tenure or can also be um, you know make it up the ranks basically to either associate professor or full professor. So. And just to, I don't know, end on a, a note at least that has something to do with Samuel Johnson, I would say that the other issue, and I talk about this in my blog as well, uh, which you can read at mysamjohnson.com. Um, the other issue here is that um, is about the humanities generally. And I've heard, you know, I haven't seen, heard about, uh, conferences and congresses that have that are called to talk about, you know, the crisis in the humanities kind of thing. And some people talk about it as being a cyclical thing that, you know, every so many years people will say that, and I can say this <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, an English degree is no good. I happen to have two of them. Uh, 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 I don't mean to make a joke about it. Uh, basically about the the uh, the uh, lack of support that often exists in many universities for uh, disciplines within humanities English you know sociology uh, those sorts of things you know one's cl classics for example uh, ones where you can hear people saying uh, well I'll never get a job if I have a degree where I learned how to speak Latin, that kind of thing. Uh, and similarly for English. So what you'll see is, is because universities are also uh, cash-strapped a, a, a lot, uh, 
you will often see uh, a, a, often a lack of support for that. And you'll certainly see a lot of people speaking out about it, the fact that the humanities uh, don't have a voice or positions aren't replaced or, uh, you know, from that attrition by attrition, basically the department is getting uh, smaller and uh, you'll have, you know, you could get to points where, you know, the, the man that I'm interested in, for example, the man that I'm writing the biography about uh, lived almost, you know, lived 250 to 300 years ago and was a white male. And uh, it might be that, you know, the person in the English department who's been there for 30 years and is the expert in Sam Johnson at the university, when he decides to retire, it might be that they might decide that they need someone and want someone in another uh, in another subject area. Basically, uh, you know, I don't. I'm not making a claim that uh, necessarily <laughs> that uh, you know any university that doesn't teach Sam Johnson is not worth existing. But perhaps you get my point about. Uh, what the assault is like on the humanities and what the what the threats are uh you know these are these are very very serious things so thank you for listening this has been another episode of the my sam johnson podcast uh you can subscribe to it wherever you subscribe to podcasts and uh, i do it weekly and i really really thank you for listening and i'll talk to you again next week thanks again